Hello and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, E.J. Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a virtual tour of the philanthropic process led by someone in philanthropy in an effort to demystify the process of going from prospective grantee partner to actual grantee partner. Today's person in philanthropy is Julie Broom with Ariadne. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for uh, for joining us today. Uh, joining us, I say us when it's just basically us two. <laughs> yes. so it's a royal we. Since we're in London, <laughs> we can say it's a royal we. Uh, tell us something about yourself. Um, about me personally? Sure. Or about Ariadne. Yes. Have a go. <laughs> um, Long walks in the park. Let us know whatever you like. Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, maybe I'll um, I'll tell you a little bit about Ariadne first and then how I came here. Um, so Ariadne is a network of European foundations supporting social change and human rights issues. Uh, we have about 170 foundation members across 23 countries. Um and I've been running Ariadne for almost three years now, having previously been with the Sigurd Rousing Trust, which is now one of, one of Ariadne's members. Um, so I got to know Ariadne a little bit from the inside yes. before um, really coming into the inside. <laughs> um, and yeah, I have a history of background working in philanthropy and human rights. And you mentioned being a member, a former member, and now turned director. Is there something that you've noticed from one switch to the other that you think, oh, I didn't realize this was so hard, or I didn't realize it was so easy? I thought the, the easy part's going to come up as much, but <laughs> what's something that you see that's different being on the inside of Ariadne as a director as opposed to being one of the members? Sure. I think, um, I think being a member of any kind of philanthropic infrastructure organization and network or affinity group um you don't really appreciate actually how much those networks do to try to to meet your needs um and so it's you know when i when i came into this i thought oh you know i've got all of these members in this this network um it's going to be really easy to sustain <laughs> the work of the network um, and also to, you know, to have a clear direction in terms of what, you know, what is going to be most beneficial for this group of people. And actually, both of those things are much more challenging than I had originally anticipated. Um, it is actually quite difficult to, uh, you know, to maintain the network um, and to have the sort of support and resources that you need in order to do that. Um, but also just realizing the diversity of, of 170 foundations, the, you know, the institutions that we're working with, their priorities, um, trying to find those common threads that bring everyone together, um, can be quite a challenge sometimes. So, you know, moving towards, uh, more collaborative work and more collaborative grant making, um, there's a lot of hustling that goes on behind the scenes to make that happen. Is it more about finding one common denominator or is it more about finding multiple common denominators among such a large group of people? I think it really is about multiple common denominators. You know, we have um, groups of funders that have coalesced around different thematic issues or um, different geographic priorities. And I think that's the way that it has to be. You know, not, if you if you try to find that one common denominator, I think you end up with the lowest common denominator, <laughs> which is not necessarily um, going to be the most effective. So really trying to bring together those people that have similar interests and similar priorities and thinking about, you know, how they can maximize their resources together. And as a hub, a philanthropic hub of members, of members with membership, 
how do you feel about where to lead versus where to facilitate? Mm, that is a tricky line to walk, I think, for almost every network or affinity group. I think it has to be a combination of both. I mean, on the one hand, um, we really look to our members to tell us what they need, um, to tell us what they're primarily interested in and where they're seeing the challenges. Um, but at the same time, sometimes from our vantage point where we're looking across foundations and are not within a single institution with a single, you know, sort of priority and, and grant making guidelines, we can sometimes see things that they can't, um, that are on the horizon or stretching across the, the sector. And I think in those cases, it is important that affinity groups really come to the fore and, and try to, to lead and say, hey, guys, actually, <laughs> we really need to think about this as a community. I'm thinking of my, my experience working with affinity groups, working in affinity groups, also creating affinity I mean, groups, yeah. and knowing that even some of these groups where there were only four members at the start, there were issues that only one organization was working on. They were really looking for partnerships and collaborations. We're finding really, really tough times actually mm -hmm. getting those collaborations. I imagine with 175 plus members, <laughs> as well as many umbrella groups underneath that, that's exacerbates itself. How do you try to sort of work with organizations so they don't feel like they're alone on certain issues? Um, I think one of the one of the things that we started doing about well, exactly five years ago, because we've just done our fifth edition this year, is our Ariadne forecast, um, which is really, we pull together interviews, surveys, and do roundtables with foundations um, across Europe, really asking them some key questions about what they see in the coming year in terms of the challenges for their grantees, the changes in their um, grant-making practice, and bringing people together around those kinds of questions actually does highlight what some of those commonalities are. And, you know, we, ha we had, I think, five or six different roundtables in different cities this year. And it's interesting to see, actually, how the conversation does come together and coalesce around particular issues and challenges that people are struggling with. Um, you know, so at the, the roundtable that we had here in London, for example, there was a lot of discussion about um, shifting the power and about the need for more voices in philanthropy, more diverse voices, um, more lived experience. And this is something that no matter what issue area you're funding, these kinds of questions come up and how do you deal with it as a philanthropist and as a foundation? So I think, um, you know, it's there are ways to to find those common issues that really resonate with people. Now, I think you may have already skipped to the next section where I sort of ask you to shamelessly plug something. I just mentioned the roundtable there. But, I didn't mean to be well, shameless. No, please don't. Uh, please don't. Don't be. Don't be sorry. But it's. Is that the thing that I would say if I ask you to shamelessly do your plug for something, would that be it? Is there something else you'd love to sort of shamelessly plug to the podcast universe out there? Um, I think the one other thing that I would shamelessly plug. <laughs> because, shamelessly plug away. Because I, I am really um, proud of the, the work that we've done on this is that uh, we just recently released a guide for foundations on dealing with and responding to sexual harassment within philanthropy um, that looks at 
foundations as employers as well as foundations as grant makers. Um, and it's based on interviews with 17 different foundations in uh, the Europe and the US. And the reason that I'm plugging it and, and feel proud of it is that this is a discussion that really wasn't being had um, until we started talking to people about it and produced this guide. Um, so I think that it is, it's something that foundations don't necessarily prioritize, uh, particularly as employers, because we're all good people. Um, we're all committed social justice activists. Um, so there's a tendency to think that we can sort of self-govern maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are, there are bigger priorities in the world and we don't need to deal with this, but actually the research that we, we did highlights that there is a need, um, and that we do need to be thinking about this as a community. So I, I plug it because I think that it's an important issue that, um, foundations need to be thinking more about. Well, I can say this just because I, I participated in that, that survey there and just before meeting with you, I was speaking to another donor and we were talking about the where sexual harassment fits in the the sphere, not just within foundations, but sort of how it, foundations interact with other foundations, with other members, uh, other donors rather, as well as other non-profits. And I was sharing some of my own experiences and how I thought, okay, I'm a man, I'm mm. a man of colour, and I'm a man of colour representing philanthropy. So what happens when I'm in a situation where I feel sexually harassed? Can I actually go out there and mention it? Or do I feel like I'm taking away from sort of a, like the Me Too movement? Or I'm taking away from women's experiences mm. with much much more serious in my mind. But I think about my experiences, and I think some of them are quite serious, where I've, I've really felt quite, not just uh, harassed, but I felt really sort of pressed in a space where I didn't, I didn't know how to get out of it. It wasn't just being discomfort, discomforted or uncomfortable. It was really about, okay, I'm now in a space where I really feel my agency is being taken away from me, and what do I do about that? So I think having this conversation is, is really important, and I think it some diversification of that, not just looking at it as a man doing it to a woman or it happening from the global north to the global south, but really saying it happens always. How do we address it? Yeah. And I think my foundation is a foundation of one. Yes. <laughs> so it's not really an HR situation. You don't have any HR people coming in and saying, yeah. okay, how do you feel about that? And so I think that might be another issue as well. Yeah. When we talk about something like that. Absolutely. Because we need to recognize that this really can happen to anyone and it really can happen everywhere. And I think one of the, the special things about foundations is that we don't only interact with the people in our own foundation of one. You know, you're going exactly. out into a lot of public spaces. You're interacting with a lot of other organizations and there's always strong power dynamics at play in a lot of those relationships. And, um, those can be tricky to manage and, and to acknowledge. So, uh, you know, a lot of what we're recommending to people is to really think about the kind of culture that you're creating in any kind of institution or um, or space that brings people together to to think about how to to make sure that those kinds of moments of discomfort or <laughs> yeah. worse yes. aren't are fostered and don't happen. And, of course, you've got this four foundations to look at, but what about for you have your policy briefing annually as well? Mm. Are there things set in place that are for the members to look at and say, okay, these are the guidelines in terms of if you feel uncomfortable when you're at our actual space that we're creating, basically, whether it's a policy briefing or a mm -hmm. webinar or a seminar or a breakaway session somewhere. Uh, how do you put that out there so pe for people to understand what they should know and not and not do when they're when attending a 
briefing or something that you're putting on together as a convening? Yeah, that's a, a next step for us to think about because that was something that came up um, as a rec- recommendation to us as a, as a network to think about going forward because we, we never have had anything like that in place. Um, thankfully, to my, to my knowledge, we've never had a problem or, or an issue, but that doesn't mean that something couldn't happen in the future. So we are starting to think about what those kinds of, what kinds of guidelines or what kind of policy might make sense. And I know that a lot of, um, other big conferences have started to, to put that in place. And I spoke to one, one network that is, it's not a philanthropic network, it's a network of NGOs, but I really liked that what they had done was to establish common values. And that was it. I mean, it's very simple. It's not about lots of rules and regulations. It's really just about these are our shared values as a group of people, as a community coming together. And if you feel that someone is not respecting and sharing those values, <laughs> then that that is a problem to be raised and to be discussed in a in a safe forum. Okay. I want to lead us next to the virtual tour, but the virtual tour is a bit different for you because you're not necessarily a traditional funder. You're not a funder at all, really. Mm-hmm. You're sort of a conglomerate of, of donors, but really sort of as an info sharing and as sort of a network of mm-hmm. sort of you said, partnerships, whether they're large or small, looking for those common threads. But there's a lot of sort of mysterious, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's even a word, mysterious. There's a mysterious nature that hangs around uh Many affinity groups, especially from the outside, from the non-profit sector, people don't know exactly how they get in, if they should be getting in. They feel like it's this fortress of donors and there's no one there informing them. So what's the tour for the, someone who feels like they should actually be at something like an Ariadne? Whether they are there to inform donors or whether they're there to solicit in some way, even if it's harmful, harmless, pardon me, <laughs> harmless uh, soliciting there, just to sort of go and say, okay, these are people talking about issues that we're working on, we should be there informing them. How do you sort of keep that at bay or sort of work through that with those people? Mm. Yeah, it is, I know that um, it it can be sensitive, I think, for those who are on the outside. Um for us, as a as a network of donors, you know, part of our mission is to create a safe space for discussion um, about grant making practice and about um, how funders can do their jobs better, um, what they can learn from one another, and how they can have more impact as a sector. And in order to do that, you you do need a space for for sharing where you feel that you're not no no there's no demands on you um and no solicitation happening in at that moment and and in that place um and i think you know one of the the really sensitive things that no no one in any field really wants to talk about is what are the things that i did wrong um what are the mistakes and um and and we try to create a place where people actually can talk about that a little bit. Um, and obviously that means that it's sometimes difficult to have grant seekers in the room. Um, that said, I think there are times and places when donors really need to be hearing and listening um, to the field and really trying to get a better sense of what the needs are, not what they think 
sitting in their office in, in London or New York or Berlin. Um, but what is actually coming from the ground and what's actually coming from the experts in the field. And we do try to create those spaces curated by us. Um, we don't necessarily go out and, and ask every NGO, um, which I suppose some might see as, as favoritism, but <laughs> it's really just, you know, if we, if we're seeing an issue that we think donors really need a more informed view of, about this, um, then we'll ask around until we find, you know, the right expert to be able to address that issue. Um, though we all are, are always clear with them that they're there to share their expertise, um, their, their recommendations, but not there to fundraise per se. Um, and I know that people find that challenging. You know, as soon as I started in this role, I had people emailing me, you know, how, how do I how get, do I get on the agenda? <laughs> <laughs> Can you organize a lunch for me? 15 you know? baked cakes the yes. first week you're in. <laughs> exactly. And I, you know, I completely understand where they're coming from. I completely understand why um, people want to use a network like ours in that way. Um, but by the same token, I feel like, you know, I need to be protective of our membership in order to preserve that space for discussion. And um, it does not mean that anyone in that space is bad mouthing <laughs> any of their grantees or any other NGOs. That's not really what it's about. It's more about reflecting on their own practice and thinking, you know, what there's so many groups asking me for, for funding. How do I make the best decision? Um, there's also a distinction with, with Ariadne that, as opposed to a skull mm -hmm. or uh, some mm -hmm. of the other ones I think of opportunity collaboration or even back in the day CGI or Davos. These are places where they're fixed locations. The Ariadne policy briefing actually happens in a different city every year. So you're looking at more local-based uh, uh, mm -hmm. NGOs and non-profits to sort of work with. So you're not necessarily going to be listening to someone who's in Switzerland if you're looking to be doing something in... Belfast or in Budapest. So this also plays into it as well. How do you find those people local on the ground? Do you put out an RFP or call for proposal or do you speak to donors who you know are working in that space for recommendations? How do you, how, is that someone's in? If they say, oh, they're coming to Barcelona next year. That's me wishful thinking for next year. <laughs> oh, Athens. I've been asking for Athens for ages, but yeah. we'll talk about that off, <laughs> offline. But if, you know, if, if someone says, okay, they're coming to us next year, how do we get on, how do we get onto the schedule mm. then what's that person do is there something that that person can do is it or is it about talking to one of the donors what's the plan for that kind of non-profit yeah so we we usually do make those decisions um by talking with donors who work in that particular country or city to get their recommendations obviously we want to have a range of different kind of topic areas um that the the local groups are working on so that there's a diversity for people who are interested in different issues to be able to find something that's interesting for them. Um, but I would say that, 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 you know, if, if you hear on the grapevine that we're coming to your city, um, you know, yes, you can say to, to one of your donors, well, I'd really, I'd really love to be considered to be one of the site visits for the area new policy briefing. And, um, they are more than welcome to submit those decisions to us or those recommendations to us. Um, we, for every policy briefing that we do, as you know, we have a planning committee, yes. um, that helps I've us plan that. that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and they really make the decision. So it's not just us as staff, you know, wielding our power. Um, 
but it's a collective decision between members and and staff you know what we think will be most interesting to the to the largest number of participants at choosing the cities just can you shed some light on how you do that for people yes. listening it is a very democratic process <laughs> <laughs> Um, each year, we ask um, the participants at the policy briefing uh, to write down on their little uh, a luggage tag that we provide them where they'd like to go next year, um, and we tally them up and review them. And um, if Athens wins, sometimes um, <laughs> we have I, to I've buy been petitioning. <laughs> For all you people in Athens, I've been trying my hardest for the last seven years. <laughs> we would love to go to Athens. We would love to. We just haven't been able to uh, to make it work thus far. Um, but yeah, we, we ask people for their input and we see what seems most feasible, where we know that we have some members who can help us on the ground, both with the logistical organization and with recommendations on things like site visits and... Um, you know, what What are the big hot issues that we should be looking at while we're there? I'm thinking of 2016. If I asked many of your donors what their forecast for 2017 would have been in 2016, as we do it sort of we go out the years in advance, I think what they had planned on working on in 2017 in 2016 is vastly different than what they actually worked on in 2017. And I can say that for many years before and after, using that as an example, Things change so rapidly as a hub and when you're planning something like a policy briefing, how do you adjust for things like that? How do you adjust for something that's a sudden change? It can be something that's humanitarian, where it's an earthquake or something that's happened like this. It can be war. It can be regime change. Mm. Uh, it can be uh, ideology change. It can be funding changes uh, outside of Europe because for the most part, you're working with European donors. And what happens when that the funding landscape shifts so dramatically. How does that affect the work that you do here? Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of something like the policy briefing, so, you know, we usually are only getting session proposals for that, you know, maybe six months in advance. Um, so hopefully things won't change too dramatically, <laughs> though they can, as we as we know. Um, you know, and the se- those sessions are put together by by members and organized by members. So it does reflect what they're thinking about. Um, but we do often have, you know, spaces for last minute things that come up. So a couple of years ago, for example, we ended up screening White Helm, the documentary about White Helmets yes. because, um, that had come out. Syria was quite timely, um, created a space to be able to show that and to have a discussion about it at the policy briefing. Um, similarly, you know, a few years before that, there was a an Egyptian activist who was invited to come do an interview at the policy briefing because it was a particularly timely moment in that country and uh, a time when we were all starting really in the early days of thinking about the closing space for civil society. And this was a really classic example of um, how that was playing out. So I think there are ways, um, and we try not to be too rigid, you know. We are a responsive group of people, so if we if we see how things are are shifting, we can try to fit that in. And obviously, this year being in Belfast, um, you know, Brexit was shifting every few hours and continues to no, do so. Brexit shifting, um, but you know, like, 
um, we had obviously um, already predicted that that would be the case. So, you know, we had a lot of that already built in, even though we didn't know necessarily what the situation was going to be. We still created the space to talk about whatever was happening at that moment in time. And you mentioned working with nonprofits and local on the ground. Do you feel like there's any sort of responsibility for Ariadne to do follow up with those nonprofits after you've left the city? Do you feel like it's more of the responsibility for the donors who visited those sites, as you've mentioned, their site visits, but also the people who come into the space and sort of educate and inform the, the donor delegates who are there? Is there any sort of feeling that you need to follow up, or do they feel like they want to follow up with you, and you're like, we've already done what we've can, we've mm-hmm. can for you, so? How's that relationship with a, with a non-profit that you've worked with as a partner for a policy briefing once the briefing is over? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's I why mean, I asked it. Obvious, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, we thank them. Um, but beyond that, um, we don't necessarily carry on and maintain those relationships afterwards. Um, as I've indicated, most of them are already grantees of our members. Um, and we hope that the people that have visited them maintain, you know, if yeah. if it's something that really interests them, that they can, they have the opportunity to seek out that contact. So I, I do actually know that this year, for example, um, one of the activists that was hosting a site visit, um, some of the was going to another country where we had some some members there who were on that site visit and got really interested. And they're planning to meet up and possibly even arrange for some opportunities for that activist while she's in the country. So, I mean, these, these kinds of things do, do happen, but we don't orchestrate it too much from our side. Well, with that, I think we've concluded the virtual tour. As much as we could actually tour a facility like Ariadne, uh, or an organization rather uh, like Ariadne, I think you did a great job of sort of navigating would-be nonprofits and how to work through this space. And it's not a space necessarily for nonprofits, but they're a space set aside where nonprofits can actually thrive. Uh, it's very isolated, <laughs> and it's very well isolated. Is not really the right word, but it's really sort of encapsulated in one one moment. It's it's the moment you're there in that city, yeah. whether they're on the stage talking to people, informing, or whether it's a site visit. And I think the site visits, as you said, are probably more powerful because you get to see the work in action. And I think going to different cities there, you really get to see what people are doing, what the issues are. And I know having gone to quite a few and also helped organize a few that it really does ingrain what's, what mm-hmm. the problem is. And you don't really just sort of, you're not thinking a theory anymore. You really have something you can look at tangibly and say, okay, this is what we need to fix. This is how we fix it. This is what we tried before that doesn't work. And now we talk to the people who are being affected by it and realize it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the fact that you were giving us this space yes, there. Okay. And I would just say that the, you know, the policy briefing is not the only place and the only opportunity exactly. for exchanges with NGOs because we, we do do webinars. Um, on a regular basis throughout the year on different topics. And we very, very often seek out NGO experts to join us for those calls. Um, and we have done a couple of le- donor learning visits in the past. So a couple of years ago, we went to Jordan, for example, where we met with quite a number of local um, NGOs on the ground there, specifically focused on the issue of migration. Next section is uh, mistaken identity. Uh, <laughs> so oh, I think this is, this is, well, it sounds quite ominous and I think in your case it's probably more humorous than ominous 
when people hear Ariadne, they hear donors and just think of you as a donor. I'm sure you get that a lot. You're a donor, you're a donor, you're a donor. You're going, no, we're a space for donors to come and do the work they need to do. How do you navigate people towards a path away from Ariadne when they think that you're actually a donor? And, and can you describe that situation when it happens for you? Um, sure. I mean, it does happen quite frequently. Um, I mean, we sometimes get cold emails through our website believing that we're, we're a donor. Um, but quite often it actually happens through contacts. Um, you know, we're all out there in the NGO space, worked in the NGO space, have lots of, um, lots of friends and colleagues out there. Um, many of whom would like to, to try to, you know, receive funding through, through us. Um, I mean, really, I've found that the easiest path is just complete and utter honesty and transparency. I can't pretend to be able to deliver something that I can't. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, the answer, we have no money, <laughs> is 100% true. Um, and also just being really clear and upfront about the fact that we are here really to serve the donors. Um and ultimately, we hope that that work will benefit the NGOs, of course, <laughs> and the and the grantees. But um, our you know our port of call is is the donors, and that you know we're we're unable to provide a sort of platform for for fundraising. And I think most people are quite understanding about that, um, you know. But I'm always sympathetic to the to the. Needs and and interests. So very kind of you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, I'm not in a position, or none of us, you know, at Ariadne are really in a position to to give out information about our our members and you know what their their interests are. Um, you know, we can try to direct them to other spaces where they might be able to to have more success. And to that end, uh, you mentioned there about keeping the space there for donors. What thinking about some do's and don'ts, what would you tell people who were coming to you and saying, obviously you tell them you have no money, but what are some of the do's that you would say when people think they should be approaching an affinity group such as Ariadne? What are some of the things they should do? And obviously the, the don't is ask for money. <laughs> but what are some of those do's and, and don'ts around behavior towards uh, speaking with someone like you or trying to reach someone like you in the first place? Um, well, it's very easy to reach us because, uh, you know, we all have our email addresses on the website. We're, you know, we're not hiding here in, in an ivory tower. Um, I think we're quite... The ivory tower is completely <laughs> underrated. It's so nice to just be away once in a while. But uh, yeah, so we're, we're quite accessible. Um, I mean, I think, I think what, what NGOs can get from, from the affinity groups the most is really a discussion about strategic trends. Um, I'm always happy to talk to people who want general information about what are donors thinking about this issue? Um, you know, how are they seeing the world? And the, you know, I don't have all of the answers, but things like our forecast give me a little bit of a roadmap. And that's for everyone to see. That's for everyone. It's available. All of our reports are available on our website. Um, and, you know, I'm always happy to have a conversation about what I'm hearing from donors about 
particular issues? You know, how did how are they thinking about migration, or are they thinking about it? Th- things like that, um, and that's an exchange that's you know relatively easy and comfortable for for us to have. Um, the what's more difficult is to ask the question, you know, who specifically would be willing to fund me? Um, and then for, for most networks, I think that's, that's a difficult question to answer because these are our members and this is a, you know, a, a, a safe space and, um, we don't feel that we can give out information, you know, that we might, you know, that we might have only because we're having conversations with them as opposed to what's on their website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before I move to the, the next section, I, I want to ask a question because you're talking about members and you mentioned that your members come from 23 different countries. There are a lot of different cultural uh, cultural differences there. A lot of things that are priorities in one area that's not a priority in another area. How do you make sure that you're not actually offending sometimes certain sensibilities with what you're highlighting? How do you make sure that people say this is a safe space for everything? It's easy to say that, to make sure that people feel safe in those spaces while not offending a certain culture, because within the European bloc, there are lots of cultural differences that really do go from one spectrum to the other. Mm. Well, I think that everyone who comes to our meetings and is part of the Ariadne Network, I mean, they've self-selected to a certain degree by being interested in social change um, issues. So I think... You know, as long as we're talking about those those issues, I don't think we've ever really had a particular instance of that kind of cultural sensitivity. Um, you know, we I think it's 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 an international enough space um, that we don't really deal with that. Obviously, donors are coming from different perspectives in terms of um, the kind of institutional framework they're working with and maybe the the taxation and um, legislative frameworks that they're dealing with. So some donors might be able to fund far more radical things than others. Um, And so that's something that needs to be navigated. But I don't think it's about cultural offense, um, per se. I think the, you know, the bigger issue is just really making sure that you know, we're sensitive in our language and the way that we deal with things when it comes to issues of gender, sexual orientation, race. Um, you know, and again, people are coming from a good place. Um, but sometimes there's more education that needs to be done um, to really understand where someone else is is coming from and what their experience has been. Um, so I think that that's, you know, it's a journey sometimes that we're all on together. Well, thank you for that. Now I'm moving away from asking the questions that I'm, I've sort of come up with to questions that other people have come up with. So this is from the nonprofit <laughs> sector, and I, can, I think you can imagine some of the questions that you would get, uh, as these questions are specifically towards Ariadne members, uh, Ariadne mm staff and you being at the top of the staff so you get to answer these questions uh first question few would argue that a collective body like ariadne can strengthen collaboration and sharing amongst grant giving sector from the ngo side the closed nature of these organizations does create some concern 
in parentheses, rumors abound of Grant giving bodies passing on negative hearsay about applicants. Close parentheses. How, if at all, would you like Ariadne to develop, one, in terms of transparency to NGO sector, and two, in building consultation and collaboration with NGOs? Uh, well, first, as I said earlier, there is there is no uh, yes. grantee bashing that happened, so I'd like and to I dispel will, that rumor. I, even though the question I posed to you, I will sort of half answer that as well. Uh, not half answering in terms of I'm only answering half of it. I'm, yes. I'm giving my part of the answer as well. That I've said I've been to about six or seven now, maybe six uh, policy briefings, and I've never seen that. Obviously, I'm not talking to everybody, but I've never seen that once there. I feel like what you have is really people coming in talking about their own grantees, really raising up uh, what their grantees are doing, and also looking at the grantees that we're meeting in the specific city. It really is not just city-specific, but it is city-specific in terms of the grantees we meet, uh, but the issues across across the globe, not just across Europe. Uh, and we're really focused on that. We're not together for for the week or for two weeks. We're really together just for a few days. So mm. we don't have much time to do gossiping <laughs> and play Mean Girls. So that's just that's. <laughs> I'm only speaking and answering that question as someone who's attended, uh, both as a, a member but also as someone from the planning community, where we look to make sure that those things are not focused on. Yeah, but thank I'll you. Be, but no worries. But thank now I'll give the no. question back to you. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. I would just really like to emphasize that. Um, that what happens in these donor-safe spaces is not really about individual organizations, individual grantees at all. It's really a, much more about the big picture and, um, you know, what are the what are the points of influence that we think we can have as a as a sector and as a grant makers. Um, I think, you know, really, in terms of in terms of transparency. Um, there, I'll acknowledge that there may be a certain lack of transparency, if, especially because Ariadne has a has a policy of tweet-free meetings. <laughs> you Which know. I thank you very much for, uh, yeah. as a non-tweeter or Twitterer. No, I, don't, yeah. I don't even know the language yet there. But. Yeah, no, I'm not much of a tweeter myself. But, um, you know, I think partly that's to, you know, keep people focused on the conversation that we're having. Um, but partly it's, it is also to really ensure that people feel that they can speak openly and speak freely and, and not have that, um, broadcast to the world. So in that respect, perhaps there is, there is less transparency about what happens inside of our meetings. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we do, we do make all of our reports available on, online. Um, we do host blogs on our website. So I think that we do try to highlight what it is that that donors are concerned about and what their priorities are. Um, and I would argue that that's actually more important um, for the NGO sector than necessarily knowing specifically what anyone said in a meeting or or, or what the specific sessions were about. Um, and and as I said before, I think. You know, we do try to provide those opportunities for there to be interaction between the donors and the NGOs. Um, you know, we try to create a little bit of a balance between um, those chances for exchange and for learning and then, you know, the chances for, for donors to really have their moment by themselves to, to reflect.
Okay, I have one more question for you from uh, a non-profit uh, person. The NGO sector is facing growing concerns about staff welfare. Staff welfare? Oof, I'm going to learn how to speak again soon. <laughs> a crisis highlighted by two suicides at Amnesty International last year. Although, of course, NGO managers have a duty to ensure organizational cultures promote staff welfare, there is the inescapable reality that growing funding constraints and increasing workload per capita are at fault. It is in sensitive areas such as this that NGOs would hesitate to consult their donors for fear of jeopardizing their own grants. Do you think an organization like Ariadne could play a, a useful role in consultation thought leadership on issues like this? Or if they have already and NGOs are unaware, where do we find that information? Mm. Um, I think it is a, I think it is an issue on which, you know, we can try to, to make a difference. I mean, um, in one respect, you know, something that we always emphasize, I think, as a network and, you know, the network, the, the members of the network sort of reinforce to one another, um, is the importance of building trusting relationships with your grantees. Um, and I think that is a thread that goes through many, many of the discussions that we have on different topics is the, you know, the importance of providing long-term core support to groups to really providing them with the resources that they need and building those kinds of relationships where a grantee does feel comfortable to come to you and say, I'm having a problem and I actually need your support. Um, and well, I think we're not at a place where, you know, 100% of foundations would respond in the way that we'd like. I, I do think that there's many foundations that actually do understand that when they're investing in an organization, they're investing in that organization and they want to see it succeed. Um, and they'd rather know about a problem earlier than later and be able to help rather than punish or penalize. Um, so those are, you know, those are the kinds of conversations that we have internally um, about how, you know, how you can really help manage the power dynamics in a way that you can have that kind of uh, trusting and open and communicative relationship. Um, we published a report earlier this year that was about um, managing grantee data. And so that report was really framed around having a conversation with your grantees and making putting them in the driver's seat to make some of those decisions about their own risks and um, what's likely to hurt them. Um, but I also think that you know this particular issue about staff welfare. I mean, we we are all aware of it, particularly you know um, in the context of the closing space for civil society and the you know the increasing pressure on organizations in so many parts of the world that um, we know that those groups are dealing with so much that staff welfare and well-being is becoming a, a real issue. And I think that it's something um, I would like to highlight more in the discussions that we have. Have you hosted something to address core funding or how the caps on core funding or is that something that's still seen as too incendiary considering that many European donors have such rigid uh, thoughts on this, especially sort of the higher up organizations, not necessarily the smaller mm -hmm. organizations? Um, we haven't, we haven't had a, you know, a, a event or, 
anything to specifically on core funding. We haven't had but a core funding parade. We oh. haven't had a core funding parade, although I would like to. Oh, that'd be amazing. I think that would be great. But we have to keep the cost down. So. <laughs> exactly. We could join the Extinction Rebellion. There you are. <laughs> um, but I, 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 but I, what has happened is that in so many of the conversations about um, the closing space for civil society and how to continue to support organizations through a time that is very, very challenging and very difficult for them. Um, core support is something that comes up again and again and again. And I, I feel like it's a mantra that, you know, if we've been beating the drum long enough that I hope more people are following it. Yeah. Um, I, I do feel like it's a recurring theme that, um, you know, we need to, we need to have more trust. Um, Foundations need to be willing to take more risks if you want to see it as a risk. Um, I, I'm not sure that everyone does, but some people clearly do. Um, <laughs> and that, that, that this is a moment in time um, when the bureaucracy that we've been living with for, for so long it doesn't necessarily um, get the results that we need. Well, I'm going to leave you with one last question, and it's on the future. What is something you would like philanthropy to eradicate in your lifetime? Wow. I know. We're thinking idea. We're talking about utopia, not dystopia. Everything is dystopia nowadays. So what's something that you'd like to see sort of gone due to philanthropy based on whether it's your own philanthropy, which we already know is very limited. <laughs> exactly. Ariadne, my non To my the people who you're working with, your members here. Oh. And beyond. That is... That is such a big question. I There's know. so many things that I would like to see. Um, but maybe, maybe bringing it a little bit into the nearer term, not the, the very distant, uh, utopia of the future. Um, you know, I would, I would really like to see us push back against this trend of closing space, um, and the closing of civic spaces and, you know, really reach a point where we we are enabling social movements, where we're enabling a wide variety of types of civil society, um, not maybe just one form, but many, many forms of civil society, and where um, there is the freedom for them to operate openly um, and and pursue all of the issues that they're working on. That way I don't have to choose just one because, you know, they're <laughs> they're working on so many. Yeah, I have to say I'm personally sad that you didn't say that you'd like to see a core funding parade happen in the, in the near future, <laughs> okay, but yeah. it's okay. Well, that, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll start working on the, uh, the core funding parade for next year. Another policy briefing to work on for next <laughs> yes. year. But thank you so much. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And I yeah. hope the listeners also enjoyed it. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too.